Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm what's inside the Chinese man's box. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, you're going to make some buzzing sounds throughout this podcast, Jason? Uh, It's a mystery, Josh. It's a mystery. Uh Uh-huh. And what is that mystery? Well, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we're talking about the films of 1967. And in this episode, in in other seasons, we've talked about the Sundance Film Festival winner. But of course, the Sundance Film Festival did not exist in 1967. So we're looking at another iconic film festival, the Venice Film Festival and the Golden Lion winner, the top prize winner there, which is Belle du Jour by Luis Buñuel featuring, among other things, a mysterious buzzing box. Among other things, Josh. Let's, it's, uh, you know, you can go down the list on these Boonwell movies and it's like, there are daytime whores and doctors who get shot and buzzing boxes. It's like Stefan from SNL. <laughs> it has everything. Belle du Jour is the hottest club in New York, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly Boonwell uh, throws a lot of odd things into his films. And, and this all of is, his films. And this is one of the least odd, at least from what I've seen of the Boonwell catalog which isn't much but i've seen some yeah i think this is in in part because it's an adaptation of a novel from 1928 by joseph kessel and so there's a plot structure for for boonwell to work with and actually i've never read this novel but just looking up the summary of it the movie actually sticks to the plot fairly closely which i was surprised by yeah i think that's boonwell like he's a fascinating figure just in general like everything that he's done I think that like is what's cool about him. He's not like I have to make this all surrealist and, you know, Dadaist or anything. I can really make a movie that is a true adaptation to this book. And still inserting all of the surreal and and absurd uh, elements that we would expect from Boonwell and that he clearly is interested in. Yeah. But again, I think this is closer to the vest than a lot of those other ones. That that is true. And uh Catherine Deneuve, the star of this as the title character. Her first movie, right? Uh, I'm not, I, I think she had some maybe small roles before this, but certainly one of her breakout performances. She was, I think, 24 when she made this film. 22. Okay. Uh, maybe that was when it came out. But young, certainly. And an early, an early role for her as uh, Belle du Jour, the housewife who uh, becomes a prostitute between the hours of 2 and 5 p.m. as a sort of outlet for her sexual fantasies and frustrations. Yeah, and we just got done with the Cool Hand Luke talking about a character study, and I think that's the best part of this movie, too, is this like really really immersive look into this character and the psyche of her. Yeah, and all, a lot of those, those surreal touches and the sort of Boonwellian aspects of this movie are concentrated in her fantasies and dreams and desires and the way the movie represents those. This was, according to Wikipedia, and again, I don't always trust these figures, but a huge hit, yeah. grossing $20.2 million uh, worldwide. Right. So, Do you know how much that is? I looked it up with inflation today. No, how much? $160 million. Imagine if this movie came <laughs> That's out. That's insane. This, you know, we talked about City of God, which it did like $30 million and was like a really big deal, right? And yeah. A, $160 million just underneath that. This. Yeah, I have to wonder. Boonwell's um, biggest hit. Go ahead, John. Yeah, oh, I was just saying, I don't know how much of that would come from the US versus from Europe. Uh, I mean, I imagine that this was a big hit in France. It, it is amazing to think of, you know, mainstream US audiences flocking to this film. I suppose one aspect is that it, it is titillating and erotic, even though there's really no nudity, I don't think. Um, but something like this that, that, people would go see because of that element to it, maybe? I think that's got to be part of it. And, you know, the other thing is, Josh, like, you know, we weren't alive then, but it really feels like the French New Wave was a mainstream film movement across the world. I think so, or, or at least far more mainstream than some movement similar to that would be, would be now. Something. Right, right, exactly. That would just reach the film nerds now and not really get beyond that. But I, you know, for me, and maybe this was just my naivete, but I was thinking of, as you're saying, the French New Wave, and we talked about Jean-Luc Godard 
and just this sort of European art film movement. We talked about uh, Michelangelo and Tonioni, and I'm thinking of Bunuel as if he's a contemporary of those people, and he's really not. Bunuel was 67 when he made this film, and he's he started making films in 1929. So this is a late career film for him. Yeah, but that's what's so great about this guy. He's so anachronistic to everything, right? Like all these young filmmakers, and he's making films with the same intense and kind of energies of these young filmmakers of that time period. Like he's totally, I don't even know if I could say ahead of his time. He's just in his own time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but one of the weird things about that too is as we're just referencing related to the plot of this movie, that this is one of Boonwell's most sort of straightforward films. Yes. And weirdly, I think some critics were a bit disappointed in him for doing something so conventional. It would be like if Cronenberg did something straightforward. Which which right? he's done. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, so critical uh, response to this was, was positive, but a, a little more mixed than I expected. Charles Champlin in the Los Angeles Times said... Belle de Jour is, like much of Boonwell's work, almost icily cold and impersonal, but at the same time an oblique and paradoxical testament to love. It is clear that Miss Deneuve loves her husband, even if she cannot adequately fulfill or express it. And she is seen to be a figure of some pathos, although a rather distant figure. The root of the dissatisfaction with Belle de Jour, I think, is that for once, Boonwell's approach, cerebral, detached, cryptic, and symbolic, is less than perfectly appropriate for getting to the heart of what is a drama of the heart or a tracking of the devil in the flesh. At that, Belle de Jure is more interesting and provocative than the great run of pictures one ever sees. And I don't know if I see this necessarily as sort of clinical or detached. I mean, it's sensual and erotic in the times that it's meant to be, I think. I think he is kind of like this outsider making outsider art right so uh, detached i think is an okay word to use but it's kind of like he's a technician that maybe is able to put these emotional pieces together without being as emotionally invested in them but i think that in a way you almost needed that for this case she is whatever an ice princess and it's no fault of hers clearly she's working through whatever she needs to work through and that's what makes this character so interesting so I don't know if you made this like all warm and cuddly if it would have worked. Right. Yeah. I think that his approach here is the right approach. And I mean, and having not read the book, I don't know uh, sort of the tone of that or what what a different kind of adaptation would look like. But to me, yeah, I think it's entirely appropriate. And the balance between the sort of strange off-putting elements and the more emotionally involving elements is right. And, And Catherine Deneuve, deserves as much credit as Bunuel because the character who is sort of confusing or off-putting at times, we can invest in because of her performance. I like all the acting in this movie. There's some really good stuff. Yes. So another sort of approach to this that I didn't quite get, uh, Manny Farber in Art Forum seems to have thought this was a comedy of, of a kind. He said, for such a clear, carefully stylized film, Belle de Jure is a consistently jarring film, one put on after another, starting with the mezzotint color, a kind of sallow sunlight which throws every shot off kilter, off the realistic. The movie keeps knocking askew each character-actor situation, going off a little or a lot into the outre. What seems like a who-knows cut, a broadly caricatured death, a standardized fetish, a dreadful gag about geisha credit cards, a lead actress who gets happy at the strangest moments, turns out to be one deadpan twist after another. And I don't know if this is a funny movie. I don't think he got it. I'd like to hear <laughs> this guy's opinion on a countess from Hong Kong and, you know, <laughs> see what that's all about. But I don't think he got it at all. I liked, you know, he mentioned the colors of the film, which are great, right? But, yeah. Um, but that, it doesn't sound like he understood this movie. It's not a comedy um, unless unless it went right over my head. <laughs> right. I mean, I think he's saying that it's, you know, it's deadpan or understated in a comedy, you know, as a comedy. But I, I don't I don't I don't see that. Well, Boonwell definitely has this kind of like anything goes like fatalistic kind of sense of humor to his work. But and that, and there might have been some funny moments in here. Like, dude, it's shocking at first, right? Where they like, you know, tie Deneuve up and you don't know it's in her fantasy and get to whipping her and all this stuff. And um, but yeah, I didn't I don't think it was deadpan at all. I just think it was just its own like kind of icy glaze. 
Yeah, I mean, I think those surrealist touches can be uh, sort of absurdly funny. And I mean, I think back to, you know, we talked about Weekend, the Godard film, which is totally surreal and absurd. And there's a lot of things in Weekend that are quite funny and are satirical. But I don't think that's the tone that this movie is going for. Yeah, Manny, art <laughs> for him. Right. So uh, finally, Paul Schrader, uh, who, of course, was a film critic before becoming a screenwriter and director. Oh, let's tap his last movie. How good was First Reformed? Yeah, First Reformed uh, was was great. And uh, he's a interesting character. All these Paul writers Schrader. are. Interesting is a good word. For yeah, him sometimes great, like brilliant. And sometimes uh, some of these people should not be allowed on social media. I like First Reform. I like First great Reform, movie. too. I think, you know, but but Schrader has also made a lot of uh, less uh, successful films. But one thing about Schrader is that he always says what he thinks. Yeah. And that was true of him as a critic as well. And he loved this movie, writing in the Los Angeles Free Press. He said, Boonwell deviously complicates Severine's basic illusion-reality interchange with different levels of non-reality. There are flashbacks, subconscious dreams, imaginary but related events, and out-and-out fantasies. Boonwell makes the viewer think that he can separate these adventures. This is fantasy, this is flashback, this is dream. But then the spectator realizes that Boonwell is changing the rules as the film progresses. Eventually, even the, quote, real scenes become suspect because the entire film is concerned with fantasy fulfillment. Boonwell is a devious guide who doesn't care whether we get lost or not. The viewer must, like Boonwell and Severine, see all the possibilities of reality and create his own movie by delimiting what he sees on the screen. You know what's really interesting about that? Paul Schrader wrote Taxi Driver, right? Yeah. Did he just describe Travis Bickle to a T in his own way? <laughs> Maybe. I haven't seen Taxi Driver in a while to be able to specifically cite elements of that movie yeah i mean that is that is one of the best aspects of this film is like okay now i'm in reality now i'm in a fantasy now what am, what am i in right now you know like and it gets murkier as the movie goes on yeah and i think i like that what he points out there which is that you think you know at first the movie opens and you're disconcerted and then immediately right. it's like oh that was a dream okay i understand now this i'm is... in the real world right right but then as it goes on especially the scene and I'm still not sure how to take it. The whole sequence where she meets that weird count. Yeah. And uh, she's taken to his house. And on the one hand, I think that it's a it's a dream or fantasy because he's in the, the horse-drawn carriage that always shows up in her dreams. But on the other hand, it seems like the kind of thing she would be hired to do as the prostitute. Well, yeah, two things about that, right? Um, one, the location where they find her is not a location we've seen before, right? So that could be that. And two... You mentioned that carriage and like right away and throughout the movie, you're hearing the bells on the carriage. And I believe you hear those bells there at that point. So it would lead you to believe it was a dream. At the time of I watched it, I didn't think it was a dream. And, you know, we can get into the ending. That's when I was like, wait a second, <laughs> is this happening or not happening? Right, right. And I think there's two ways to interpret that ending to say it's a dream. And the way the sort of dream element of it that I assumed is the opposite that apparently other people assumed um, of what is a dream and what is reality. Ooh, so save that for the next segment, Josh. I'd like to get into that. Uh, we will get into that. Between 2 and 5 p.m. today. <laughs> yes. The uh, podcasting du jour. <laughs> um, so had you seen this film before, Jason? No. It, it's a total uh, surprise to me. Yeah. I, uh, I saw this in a class in college, a, a French film class. And uh, I didn't remember a ton about it, but I think I liked it at the time. And I, I liked it even more this time. Um, I thought it was pretty fascinating. So, uh, Dave, had you watched this before? I had not. No, and I was, uh, I really liked this movie. Uh, you know, that's a surprise. This seems like one Dave's parents would have shown him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Sure a baby. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Mommy and daddy are going out. Let's put on Belle de Jour. It's a little too highbrow for them, yeah, I think. That's true. <laughs> it needed, it's, not, it's no Kentucky Fried movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll come back in a moment then and talk about our general thoughts on Belle de Jour. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we are talking about the Venice Film Festival Golden Lion winner, Belle de Jour. And I don't know if we want, we, we were just talking about 
uh, getting to discuss the ending. I don't know if we want to start with that. Hey, though. Josh, I have a question, though. Yes. Because it won the Golden Lion and the Pazanetti Award for Best Film. I didn't know there were two different awards. Yeah, I don't know. I saw that as well. The Golden Lion is the main film festival award. But some of these film festivals, I know, for example, there's the the Fipreski Prize that right, is given out at, at several film festivals. Yeah. And that's sort of a separate group that just awards their own choices at the film festival. So it may be some sort of separate jury or a group of people who are also saying that this is the best film, but the golden lion is the official right, film that's festival the big award. One. Yeah. And this was also won the, uh, is it the Bodil award for best European film, which is the Danish version of the best film in 1968 and the French syndicate of cinema critics award for best film in 1968. And Deneuve was uh, nominated for Best Actress BAFTA for this film in 1969. It had quite a run. Yeah, it did. A lot of the reviews that I looked up were uh, sort of over the course, especially in the U.S. I don't know exactly when it came out, but the Paul Schrader review, for example, I think was from 1969. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the ending first because I think we're alluding to certain pieces. And I think to talk about the ending, if people haven't seen it, would be doing it an injustice without building to how we got to the ending. Yes, and uh, building to a climax is what <laughs> Belle de Jour is all about. Yeah, but not not with her husband. No, no, mm. no. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the setup is is Severine, a.k.a. Belle de Jour, the Catherine Deneuve character, is married to this kind of boring-seeming dude. He's very handsome, though. He is very handsome. Uh, Pierre. Pierre, yes, uh, played by Jean Sorel. And he's a doctor. He's very handsome. Seems like an ideal on paper husband. Yeah, I don't think he's boring. He they because he's trying to connect with her. There's just something missing in the connection with the two of them. Right. Well, I think the boringness of him is in bed. You know, he is he's too respectful of her. He loves her too much in a way. And as we see over the course of this movie, what she kind of needs is this kinky, sadomasochistic sex that he's not going to give her. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about 1967, all the turning point moments. I wonder how uh, the subject of like S&M and just kind of like consensual violence, I guess, sexually, like was that talked about on film before? I don't know. But what's amazing is that the novel is from 1928 and it's apparently all in there. So that's pretty uh, impressive. Well, the French, we, we, you know, they, uh, they go for it all the time. Yeah. You know, a French word. Uh, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> uh, we'll leave I that. I was trying to th think of thank you, but I forgot how to say that's it. okay. How do you say thank you? Merci. Yeah. I knew that yeah. stupid idiot, Jason. Anyway. Oh, I need someone to beat me right now. Beat me so hard right now. Till I can't take it anymore. Is that is that Lee Marvin <laughs> as an S and M uh, practitioner? Is that what you're doing I'm there? I'm bad, and I need someone to beat me in this room inside of the madam's apartment, Josh. Um. So I mean, I think we're talking about her husband, though. Um, he's not giving her what she wants or needs, in part because she doesn't tell. She him. never expresses yeah. it. She just kind of says, "Like I love you. I know there are things wrong, but I can't really." get into that type thing or right. tell or explain it to you. I mean, and part of it may be that she doesn't entirely understand it herself. You know, she's having these fantasies, but she doesn't process them. And, and she almost is going on instinct when she learns about this brothel, this sort of high end brothel in the madam's apartment. And she's never even thought of that before, it seems like. But once she hears about it, she fixates on it. And even she goes and then she's going to leave. And I mean, she's very uncertain of what she wants. Yeah. I mean, and again, like how much access was there to whatever mental health issues surround the fantasies? And I'm not saying they're unhealthy at all. I'm just saying were they talked about in a healthy manner at that time, right? Like, could she have said to a Pierre, like, well, these are the things I want. You know, would he have been like, oh, well, OK, that's different for what I want, but maybe we could try it. Or would, or would he have been like, you're crazy. This is totally, you know, messed up and blah, blah, blah. Right. So. Right. I mean, that seems like a big risk that that would be that she would take that that people didn't view this kind of stuff as normal or healthy at that time. And, you know, she would risk losing her marriage and losing her husband that she loves if she revealed this to him and that she can only explore it in this sort of 
dirty illicit contacts yeah and she like you said she needs i think you said she needs a stern hand did you say that or uh i mean i don't know but that is certainly the true. more submissive she is the more she's turned on by it or into the whole situation and there are things like with that big chinese man where you would see the other um prostitutes not want to get involved and she really you know that was like a turning point for her where she really enjoyed it. And it seemed like it was a violent encounter. Right. Violent or at least a rough. And yeah, that's clearly one of the scenes where you start to understand because the uh, sort of housekeeper comes in afterwards and you see everything is things are knocked over and she's kind of lying face down on the bed and you don't know, has she been mistreated? And the housekeeper says, Oh, I don't blame you. I would not want to be with that man. And then, as her, she lifts her head up and you see her and she has this blissful look on her face and you realize, oh, this is exactly what she wants. Yeah, she goes, what do you know anyway? Right, right. right. But right, she needs that stern hand even when it's just when she's hesitant about does she really want to commit to doing this, to being a prostitute and she's about to leave and when the madam says, get in there right now, that's when she responds. Yeah, so now let's bring in some of the supporting players. Uh, Michel Piccoli. Yes. So great. He's so great as Henri. Usson, yeah. Usson. And he's kind of like this, uh, he's Pierre's friend, but he's constantly probably hitting on everyone he sees, right? It, it so. appears that way. And he also seems to be the boyfriend of Severine's friend, Renee, but she, she, yeah. she doesn't want to be his girlfriend in a way. You know, Severine says, oh, are you still with Husson? And she's like, oh, I don't want to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, He's like the Pepe Le Pew. Right? Yeah, he just yes. goes for it constantly. <laughs> And, you know, um, he would definitely be me too today. But the swing in 60s, this was probably like, I'm just expressing myself. What is wrong with that? Right. You know, and uh, he's just uh, trying to get in with the with Severine and every other woman. And he's the one who tells her, um, you know, he knows of a whorehouse that he used to go to. And, you know, she starts going there and then eventually he ends up there, which kind of has to happen. Right. Right. It's an obvious development in the story. And she's so disgusted with him and wants nothing to do with him. But like it's what's interesting is the more repulsed she is by him, like it's getting closer to it actually happening. Right. Yeah. But on the other hand, he's then repulsed by her is that he has these double standards where he is attracted to her because he thinks she's this wholesome wife of his friend. And when he learns that she's a whore, he doesn't want her anymore because he's judging her. Isn't it great? Not I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying isn't he great, but I'm saying isn't that great? All of these dichotomies that these characters have uh, emotionally and it's all up there for us. Right. And I think that speaks to what you were talking about before is that she can't express those desires to the sort of respectable husband that she has, the people in polite society, because those desires are only allowed if you're a dirty prostitute. I've not been one, so I, and I did not, I was not around in that time period, so I can't talk about that. I can talk about Pierre Clemente, though, Josh, who plays this kind of really kind of uh, harrowing villain type and dressed like a count from the 1800s with a grill on his mouth with fake teeth. And he becomes the closest connection that uh, Severine has there for a while uh, in the whorehouse. And then she, and then he becomes too obsessed with her and is going to expose her to Pierre. Right. And uh, he is, I guess he, yeah, a villain is right. I mean, at first she's excited by him because he's dangerous and he's rough and he's these kinds of things that she's wanted. And then he goes too far with it and he becomes obsessed with her and wants her to leave her husband and things that she doesn't want. So I don't know if he's dressed like an 18th century count necessarily. He he looked like he was dressed like, you know, a, the street thug of the time, uh, you know, or. I thought he was going to break into putting on the Ritz at some point in time. <laughs> yeah, uh, he is a villain. He's he's a he's a criminal. Yeah, well, he, he's a criminal, certainly. So yeah. in real life, he's a villain because he beats people up and steals their money. True. And also. uh Spoiler alert, shoots Pierre. Yeah, eventually, like I said, <laughs> I think eventually he's obviously a bad a bad guy, but I think at first he's presented as more along the lines of just he's he's dangerous and he's the thing that she's attracted to and we don't necessarily know that he's going to become this sort of stalker figure. Yeah. 
okay, I think he's a bad guy right from the start. Yeah. You know? I mean, we do get the whole scene with him and his partner where they rob somebody. That's literally the the intro scene to these characters, Josh. Yes. So I that mean. is that is true. But we don't know. I mean, the other people, whether it's the Chinese guy or the the professor who's into being uh, scolded yeah. or the, was it Mr. Adolf, the first uh, client she encounters? We don't know anything about their backgrounds or what else they do. We just see them in the whorehouse. Right. So if we're seeing this guy outside of the whorehouse, there has to be a reason for it, correct? Right, right. But I'm just saying that he may not be the only, quote, bad guy that she ends up seeing. No, I didn't. I'm not saying that. I'm saying he is a bad guy. Yeah. And because we really haven't seen anyone else's point of view in this entire film, Besides Severine, we're cutting to this scene with these two guys for the first time in the movie an hour or so in, right? Like, there has to be a reason for that. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that is kind of a jarring moment because at first you're like, who are these people and why are we watching them and what's going on here? And so it's clearly wanting you to, Bunuel is wanting you to understand that these guys are criminals and that they're dangerous. So I, I agree. You're right about that. Boom, your face. Thank you. <laughs> um, should we talk about that crazy scene with the, the guy who actually is a count uh, with the monocle and where he hires her or appears to hire her to play his dead daughter? That was uh, fascinating, I think. Uh, and it would have been more fascinating if uh, there weren't certain cuts to that scene. If, yeah, I don't oh, know. Were, were there things that they had to cut for uh, censorship? Yeah, Boonwell had like, I guess on the wall, like some very grotesque image of christ so while you're seeing all that you're seeing this uh really really uh not favorable portrayal of uh jesus picture right so but go ahead get into it man yeah i mean i just obviously there's the element of is it real or is it not real but um i thought that was that was one of the scenes where we're exploring it's it's this guy's fetish more than her i mean she doesn't seem to quite understand what he wants and she's just going along with it and the idea of lying there playing dead is not necessarily something that that turns her on. But obviously, it's this very specific sort of scene that he plays out over and over again. And there's a reference earlier where it's like he's done this with other girls. Yeah, they don't come back. Right. And then the way they kick her out at the end, it's obvious that once he does it once with someone, he can't ever see that person again. Yeah. So, um, right. She's in this coffin. And you're right. Maybe that's not her favorite thing or whatnot but the fact is like he's calling all the shots and we know she kind of gets off on that aspect of it that's true and that's in contrast to the scene with the professor who himself wants to be submissive and she can't do that she yeah. can't be the dominant one yeah really interesting huh yeah so. yeah but i think that all of those sort of complex dynamics feed into the idea there of wait is this real or is this well, her dream she has that one dream sequence where I mean, they really, you know, give it to her where she's like tied to the tree and they're throwing mud at her face. And the more mud they throw at her, the more turned on she is. And it's like it's uh, really shows you, you know, kind of how far she wants to go with this type of activity. Right, right. And whether she literally wants to have mud thrown at her, but she just kind of wants to feel that that's the way that she's being treated. Yeah. Now, as a kid, I've had mud thrown at me and I, I didn't feel any sexual exhilaration. Dave, you ever had mud thrown at you? No, I haven't. Sounds fun. Yeah, maybe give it a try. See how I'll you feel about it. At you. <laughs> See if you like it. So, um, so now, Josh, I think we've set the scene and we can talk about the ending. Okay. Which is, uh, as we've mentioned, this criminal is a Marcel. Or, yeah, I think that's his name. Right. He's kind of stalking her, and she's like, hey, you know, he's she's left the the brothel at this point. She's trying to give it a good, honest try with Pierre. Things are better between them now at this point, right? And. Uh, He's like, I'm going to tell your husband. And, he, and she's like, go ahead. Like someone has to, right? And then, so he's like, nah, I'm just going to go. And then Pierre, he sees Pierre on the street and he shoots Pierre. And I'm going to let you take it from here in one minute. But so then the cops track him down and shoot him on the street. And did it not remind you of the ending of Breathless? Oh, yeah. And the other thing, there's another, yeah. what I thought was a Breathless reference with somebody selling the New York Herald Tribune like Gene Seberg does in Breathless. Yeah, that that could be, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it was almost, uh, I'm not going to say shot for shot, but the way that sequence was set up and the way he dies was very reminiscent of Breathless. Yeah, and I can see, I mean, I think this goes to also what we're saying about Boonwell being from another generation, but feeling like he's just as vital as those young French New Wave filmmakers. And I think part of that maybe is that he's 
he is revitalized by them. He's influenced by them. He's inspired by these younger filmmakers who take chances. So I could see that. I think you're right there, Josh. So Pierre's shot. He survives it. He is now in a wheelchair and he's basically comatose, I'd say. Yeah, it's or is un- he in a vegetative state even? Or? It's unclear because it sounds like because Husson, the Michel Piccoli character, comes and he says, I'm going to tell Pierre everything. And she is upset. And so the implication, I think, there is that Pierre will understand if you talk to him, but he can't speak. Yeah. So not necessarily in a vegetative state, but just unable to communicate. Yeah. And of course, Husson, of all the characters, has hair closest to Dave. That's a real stretch. All right, move on. (laughs) Um, But right. But the thing about the ending is so right. Pierre is whatever exactly his condition is. He's not in good shape. He's in the wheelchair. He's clearly paralyzed. He has difficulty. He can't speak. He can't see. She's got to take care of him. And in the final moments, after Usain has left and he, presumably does tell and, and has told Pierre everything, Pierre suddenly is fine. He gets up from the wheelchair. He starts speaking. He takes off his sunglasses and they have this sort of nice interaction as husband and wife. Yeah. Well, you left out one thing. So first, so he tells him all this stuff and then Severine comes over and we see a tear down his eye. So even before we have any idea that he is okay, per se, right? All we know is that he understood everything and it's made him cry. Then he gets up, like you said, they pour his drinks and he talks about like an upcoming vacation they could take together. And that's like uh, pretty much the end of the movie, right? Yeah. And so for me, I thought, okay, that's her fantasy. She's dreaming that Pierre is okay that their relationship is good. They're just a normal husband and wife. They're going to go on a vacation. And so that's sort of a bittersweet ending of her fantasy has now shifted from these degrading sexual fantasies to just a fantasy of domestic bliss. Mm -hmm. But there is also apparently an interpretation that I read that the idea there is that that final scene is in fact one of the only real things that's happened in the movie and all of her adventures as a prostitute are fantasy. Hmm. Interesting. So what do you think happened? No, I, I, I stick with my interpretation. I think that the idea is that Pierre is in fact still paralyzed, unable to speak, whatever it is, is still injured, may or may not recover, but she, her now fondest wish is for him to be okay. And for them to be able to have this sort of normal mundane relationship where they talk about going on vacation, even though that's maybe not something that would ever be possible for her. So does any of it happen? Does, does Henri tell him the truth? Yeah. I think the only thing to me that's a fantasy is what happens after he is the very, very end where he gets up and he appears to be okay. Because I could argue, right. When Marcel comes in and he, and he says, I'm going to tell your husband, she's like, well, good. Someone has to, that she wants to tell him and she's wanted to tell him this whole time. And then the fantasy starts with Henri finally telling him because we also have him, you know, knowing from however long ago and could always hold it over her. So I think she wants the whole truth to get out. And maybe that's where the fantasy starts. Right. Well, I think she does want the truth to get out. But what she wants is for the truth to get out and for Pierre to accept it and for them to be fine. Right. I'm saying I think I just. Yes, exactly. But I'm saying for them to be fine, all that has to get out. Right. You're saying it did get out and then the fantasy starts. I'm saying maybe it didn't get out at all. And that's where the fantasy starts. That could be. That could be. But I definitely don't think, I mean, it's interesting to think of the idea that all of this is a fantasy, that she never was able to actually go through with doing anything and that she's stuck in this sort of mundane world that she's been in, that she was in at the beginning of the movie. But I don't, I just, I don't see that as, as the supported by the movie so yeah what doesn't make sense to me there is was pierre just shot just no i think the idea that he was he wasn't shot he's okay and he's fine because he was never shot oh and the only thing the the real thing is them they poured the drinks and talked about yeah is that she's been for the entire movie having this fantasy of becoming a prostitute and doing all the things that she does in the movie but that she didn't really do yeah i didn't take it that way but uh i like it it's cool it's a cool interpretation dave I'm not sure yet, to be honest. And that, that's why I love this movie so much. Cause you know, you know, I love a movie that, you know, you could really just kind of sit with for a while. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely see both of those angles. I see also what Jason was saying with the, uh, you, you know, which is kind of a, not the exact opposite, just like a totally different, you know, 
similar but different interpretation. I just, uh, I think there's a lot to chew on here. There is. And uh, some people might have a fetish for that. That's true. (laughs) Chewing. Chewing. Yes. So uh, do we want to rate this one out of uh, five? uh, Well, I guess we didn't talk about the buzzing box, really. Should we talk about that? Just a reference. Uh, Yeah. And we, you know, going back to our first season with Quentin Tarantino, who we know loves uh, the French new wave, right? Band Apart is named after Band of Outsiders, Godard. So it's just this box that we see the large Chinese man has, and we never see what's inside of it, never know what's inside of it, kind of like the box in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, and uh, Kiss Me Deadly is another reference there where they have... Uh, the Lita Ford song. <laughs> no, the, the <laughs> film Kiss Me Deadly, which I, I'm not sure, I should have looked this up whether it was before or after this. It's another, I think, 60s film, so it's right around the same time, but there's a that is even closer to what's in Pulp Fiction because it's a glowing briefcase yeah. that you is a sort of MacGuffin in the film and you don't really ever know what's actually in it. Well, Josh... Here's a fun thing. I uh, just ate at Beauty and Essex, celebrity chef Chris Santos's restaurant. He loves Pulp Fiction so much, he now serves his hamburger in a glowing green box. Nice. Wow. Yeah. You can hear more about food on Food and Loathing My Food podcast. What do you think was in the Chinese man's box, Josh? I mean, I assumed it was some sort of sex toy. That's what I thought, but yeah. who knows? 1955 for Kiss Me Deadly. Okay, so this, you know, that could have been influence, an influence on this. Then. It ain't no big thing. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do enjoy Lita Ford as well. That's her best song. Yeah. So, so I, as I was saying, we want to rate this out of five uh, buzzing Chinese boxes. Sure. It gets three for me, but I really enjoyed this conversation about it too. This was nice. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. Definitely. This is a film where there's a lot to delve into, even if you're not sure how you reacted to yeah, it. Yeah. And three is good. Like, you know, we, I'd say three is like, Hey, this is a good movie. And it's an hour and 40 minutes. You should totally watch it. Martin Scorsese loves it. What else do you need? <laughs> About that could apply to any movie that he loves, right? <laughs> uh, I'm going to give it a three and a half. I still, I was, I was befuddled, but engrossed. And I, I, like I said, I think I liked it a little more than the first time when I saw it in college and was mostly probably just confused. So three and a half buzzing boxes for me, Dave. Four buzzing boxes Whoa, for me. Yeah. Hill. <laughs> I feel like we're 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 opening Dave's uh, horizons to so many uh, areas of cinema in this season and sexual exploration. That too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we'll come back then in a moment and talk about the legacy of Belle de Jour. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about Luis Buñuel's Belle de Jour, the Venice Film Festival Golden Lion winner. Is it Luis or Louis? Luis, I think. He's Spanish. He's not not French. So maybe when he's made, because he made movies in so many languages, maybe when he was making movies in Mexico, it was Luis. But maybe when he was making movies in France, it was just Louis. I mean, maybe I don't know, but he, I mean, it seems I, seems like the type of guy that would go for that. I I guess, but <laughs> as <laughs> I'm flabbergasted, I don't know. know. I hadn't thought. I mean, uh, he's. I'm yeah. sure Luis would be the way in Spanish, and that's that's where he's from. So I think that's the way. It would Josh, be I'm going to start this segment. Okay, <laughs> please. Let's, let's. We're talking about the legacy. One huge thing we didn't talk about. One of the best aspects of this film. Oh my goodness, the costume design, huh? Uh, Yves Saint Laurent. Yves Saint Laurent, famous, uh, you know, fashion house out of Paris and all of or most of uh, Severine's outfits are made by them and just like pop constantly, uh, not just uh, on her, but against all of the fashion in the movie. Like it was really fun to look at that. Yeah. And I mean, going back to that uh, Manny Farber review that he talks about the sallow colors, I didn't really see that. There's there's a lot of great like variety of color in this film that looks amazing. What is this dude? What's his what's his deal, bro? He's he's uh he's a very famous critic. Hey Farber. <laughs> you and me, we we're gonna have a talk. Yeah. He's dead. All so right. uh, well, maybe a seance. Yeah. <laughs> um, if I am haunted by the ghost of Manny Farber after this, I'm not gonna be happy. But I mean, you know, maybe, I will be happy if that, that happens. Be, That's yeah, amazing. So specific. <laughs> yeah. right? He'd be a great guest for this podcast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we have to do a Ouija board to see what he's saying. So. Um as we said, like, or as I was saying, that this is a sort of a late career film for Bunuel, who has, you know, made dozens of films leading up to this in multiple languages, in multiple languages, in multiple countries, worked in in France, in Spain, and in Mexico. And didn't he do some stuff in Hollywood too? Uh, I 
Maybe. So you do Robinson Caruso in Hollywood, or that could be. I should have uh, looked more closely at that. You yeah, might be you right. Should have. You're supposed to be this um, smart one. But this was this was on the tail end of his career. He made five more films after this, um, including the uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, which is the only other Bunuel feature that I've seen, which is way weirder than this. Yeah. And in a good way or not a good way? No, see, to me, I mean, and that's like, it's a, it's a highly acclaimed classic. And to me, that movie is too much of just what the hell. And at a certain point, you lose being able to sort of balance that. And instead of understanding, and that's a very political film. And instead of understanding his point, it's just like a bunch of random weirdness. Now, I watched The Exterminating Angel from 1961 in preparation for this. And that, uh, I believe, was made in Spain. And it was about kind of like the political situation going on over there. And to me, all the best stuff in that movie was the what the fuck stuff. All the crazy (laughs) surrealist moments. The fact that there was just a bear living in this mansion who's like, uh, he's like, no, he's like kind of one of the servants. He's cool. He's a bear. right? You know, Um, the stuff that lost me was kind of the same stuff that lost me in the weekend which was more of that like on the nose, like dramatic, just kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? I got ex, uh, you know, the exposition, yeah, or the just, social commentary. Yeah, aspect. just all that stuff, which there was plenty of. But the stuff that was funny, I think, was making those points in so much of a more unique way. Yeah, that's fair. And it's, I mean, I haven't seen, and actually that, the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie is a movie where um, I watched it actually in preparation for a piecing it together episode for some reason. And I think I didn't end up talking about it, but I thought, oh, I should see this movie that I've never seen because I think it's relevant to what we're going to talk about. And I watched it and I was kind of baffled by it. And I went to Letterboxd to log that I had watched it and discovered that I had already watched it and completely forgotten that I had Whoa. watched it, apparently. Do you remember what movie you were watching it for? Open I season don't remember. Two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> right, like I said, it was. It turned out to be, I was wrong and mm. I didn't bring it up and it didn't really connect to whatever it was we were going to talk about. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird experience that then sort of uh, lost me, I guess. Well, we're going to go back to one of his other films real fast, but one thing I wanted to say, and I, I bet you, I mean, you've definitely seen in Belle du Jour and you've definitely seen an Exterminating Angel. I'm guessing it's in all of his work. Is He's so fluid with the camera. It's really, really good stuff the way he moves the camera. Um, and I wanted to shout out the director of photography here, uh, Sasha Vernet, DP for a lot of Alain Roman films. Oh, Alain Rene? Yeah. Director of Last Year at Marion Bad, which keeps coming out this season. And Peter Greenaway. Oh, yeah. Talk about surreal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I I think he moved the camera really, really just so smoothly in this film. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and and Bunuel, again, is such a longstanding, I mean, he's someone who started in the early days of cinema with silent films. So he certainly has a confidence in his visual style at this point. Yeah, right. But we talked about like uh, Chaplin's last movie and that that didn't really have any distinct style to it, whereas this is just flowing with style, right? Right. Well, and I think the difference there is that Bunuel has always been about those surreal images, whereas Chaplin has more been more focused on performance, I think. Yeah, so uh, three quotes, Josh, to get us into that uh, other... Bunuel film. Octavio Paz, the famous author, said Bunuel uh, created the marriage between the film image to the poetic image, creating a new reality, scandalous and subversive. Pretty cool. Ingmar Bergman said Bunuel nearly always made Bunuel films, which I kind of love, right? (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right that whatever you think of these movies, they are their own unique entity. Yeah. And I think it was Ebert who said that uh, of the film that I want to discuss, it's the most famous short film of all time. Yes, and that is Bunuel's first film, uh, Un Chien Andalou. Yes, which is from 29, maybe? Yes, 1929. And was it all the rage in the Paris art scene? And uh, I saw it in college and found it shocking then. And I rewatched it for this. And it is uh, just, if you said, oh, Louis Bunuel and uh, Salvador Dali teamed up to make something, and you were like, well, it better be weird or I'm going to be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. Yeah, that I watched that too because it's as you say, it's short. It's like twenty minutes, and you can it's in the public domain. You can find it anywhere online. It's on YouTube. Just search. It's, it, it's yeah. on YouTube. 
Um, it's on Tubi, so you can watch an ad for Thunder Shirts before you uh, see this film, which sort of adds to the surrealness of it. Um, but yeah, it's 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 it, it it is really almost just you don't want to interpret it necessarily. It's just a series of images that will stick with you. Although it weirdly invites you to think that there's a plot. What I loved about it is that all these title cards that are like eight years later yeah. that spring. And at first you're like, Oh, okay. So this is before this. And then you realize that it's meaningless. There's at one point in the middle of a scene, all of a sudden it says like, you know, three years earlier or something like that. And it's literally the same exact moment with those characters. And you realize, Oh, this is just him fucking. Right. With us. And it was supposedly based on dreams that they both had. And, you know, they were trying to find a through line to them, but um, whether they did or not, the music's great in there. The camera's great in there. And yeah, just, just like you said, you, if you want to try to interpret it, that's cool. But I think this is one you just go in and look at and, you know, after the credits roll and you're like, what the fuck? Just, just enjoy the, what the fuckiness of it. All. Right. I mean, it's like going to see a, looking at a Dolly painting or something like that. You can just appreciate the weirdness. Of yeah. It. I really, I really still love it. Yeah. So Catherine Deneuve, as we said, this is, if not her first role, one of her earliest roles. And of course, continues to be an international superstar. Legend. Yeah. And just amazing. We talked about her in uh, our 2007 yeah. season in Persepolis. She does uh, was one of the main voices in that. Um, and just one of my favorite films from last year, uh, The Truth by Hirokazu Koreeda. She is one of the main stars of that and is, is fantastic in it. So just an insane career in multiple languages, in multiple countries. She was nominated for Best Actress uh, at the Oscars in 1993 for Indochine, which I've never seen. But uh, I think of Dancer in the Dark as another just amazing role of hers. Yeah. And uh, Piccoli, Michel Piccoli, might not have had the international success that she had, but he had that amount of success in France, it seemed like. He's one of the all-time leading character men of of uh, French acting. Yeah, he didn't really. I mean, looking through his credits, I don't. There was very little that I recognized, and I don't think he ever worked really outside of France. But steadily, almost all the way until he died in 2020. Um, and he also worked with Bunuel again on the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. He's one of the stars of that. So certainly a legend. Josh, let's talk about Joseph Kessel. This dude, man, he was prolific. Yeah, he had 14 books. That he wrote made into movies. Oh, wow. And on top of that, he wrote 12 screenplays that were not uh, from his books. Like, amazing. What an output that guy had. Yeah. And, this, you know, I actually, I didn't look him up. This is the author of the novel. Uh, any other really famous movies that were made from his work? Uh, I'd have to look that up. I okay. didn't write that. So, no. Um, <laughs> no, the writer that I looked at is uh, Jean-Claude Carrier, who is the co-screenwriter of this film along with Bunuel who had an incredibly prolific career and just died a few months ago. And there were a lot of tributes to him, but in addition to many things, he, um, and was nominated for Oscars, but he worked again with Bunuel also on the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, as well as that obscure object of desire, which was Bunuel's final film in 1977, but a renowned screenwriter in multiple languages was nominated. I think, is it God, now I can't remember, but the movie he was nominated or even won an Oscar for was an English language film. Mm, maybe take a note on that next time. Now Sorry. you look like the dumb. Idiot yeah, the we're world. both uh, not, not. Hey Josh, if you were going to be a whore, what hours of the day would you work? Um, I had not ever thought about that, but I feel like her hours are so like, I, I you know, five. yeah, yeah I'm not, a, I'm not a morning person. So I probably would be, you know, just awake and, and ready to go by that point. So it's like it a matinee horror. Yeah, exactly. Like that, so. Matinee horror, I think was the original <laughs> title of this film. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Josh, do you know much about Belle Tujols? I don't. Belle Tujols, which is a sort of unofficial sequel made by uh, Manuel de Oliveira, was another big figure of cinema a Portuguese director who made this film in 2006. And I actually looked, I thought, you know, maybe I'd try to watch a little of it, but it doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere. But it features Michel Piccoli um, reprising yeah. his role as Usson, but the uh, role of Severine is played by Boulet Augier, some actress who I'm not familiar yeah, with. Yeah, but I, I was reading about the plot and Pierre has died and they haven't connected in years. And now they're connecting for the first time, maybe in like 25 years to kind of, you know, cement uh, or make peace with whatever the past they had is. Yeah, it sounds interesting, although at least on Letterboxd, a lot of the responses were sort of unenthused to it. I mean, it did well critically. Yeah. So I and, and like I said, Oliveira is uh, 
he's certainly an acclaimed filmmaker and uh, was making, I think he made films into his hundreds. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So God, we're lazy. <laughs> we're we're going to see if we can keep podcasting into our hundreds. Dave, you're the music guy. What do you think <laughs> of Alsu Vilenka's song, Belle de Jour, a classic Brazilian song? Don't know it. Okay. Well, it's, <laughs> it's an homage to the film. It's a, you know, I would imagine so. That's cool. Yeah. Things too. Really On that note, that is Belle de Jour. <laughs> you know there's no music in this movie? You know, see, that's interesting. Like, I didn't even necessarily notice right? that. Because yeah. you're hearing the bells so often. And right, everything. right, right. So it feels like there's a soundtrack. Right, right. Because sometimes that's, you know, a very deliberate choice. I think of, like, The Birds, which deliberately has no score and the, to highlight the sort of uh, disturbing animal noises in it. And you really notice it. But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't even realize that. Well, one of us has to bring the meat today, Josh. Thank you for pointing that out. So that is Belle de Jour, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Check us out on social media. Yeah, do that. AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year, Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod, Twitter, Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook and Instagram, Jason Harris Comedy, Facebook and Instagram, <laughs> Jay Harris Comedy, Twitter, go for Jason.com. I wouldn't pay to look at that website ever. <laughs> And, and Jason's uh, newest podcast. Food and Loathing. And Josh, there was some good loathing on our episode here today. Awesome movie year. But give it a listen. If you like food and you want to learn more about the all the crazy happenings in the Vegas food and dining scene, it's myself and another food writer, Al Mancini. Thanks for that, Josh. Oh, you're welcome. Check me out at joshbellheadseverything.com, at joshbellheadseverything on Facebook, and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, don't forget to check out our Facebook group, Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces. I bet there are some Boonwell fans on there that will tell us uh, all about how we don't know what we're talking about. No, I think they'll give us a little more dap on this one than some of our other ones in the past. Well, I hope so. What do we have in our next episode, Jason? Josh, 1967 had a best picture, and we're going to cover it in the next episode. It's in the heat of the night, and we've talked about this movie on a few other episodes. I've never seen it. I'm excited to watch it. I love this movie, actually. I've seen it before, so I hope I will love it again. Tune in next time for In the Heat of the Night, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.